0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions podcast. I'm Joe Schumacher and I'm here today with uh, Jeremy Chang. Jeremy, how are you doing? Pretty good, Joe. How are you holding up during uh, pandemic times? Uh, As well as anyone can, I suppose. Uh, It's quite different. (laughs) I don't know. uh, Have have we hosted a a pandemic podcast together yet? This might be our first one. We have not.
1: No, I think this is the inaugural. Yeah podcast.
0: That's great. Um, well, it's good to see you here on Zoom. Um, uh, so today we have um, a really interesting set of conversations that that we're going to get into, um, going all the way into the function of neural circuits and the computations that neural circuits perform, um, up to you know sort of philosophical questions about. The nature of perception and what we can do as neuroscientists to probe, um, how animals perceive the world and use that information for guiding their behaviors. Um, we've talked a little bit in the past about, you know, how the brain is organized on, on broad scales, but today's guest, I think really covers things in a, a completely different way than we've done in the past using a whole, um, uh, re- wide range of techniques and tools and, um, experimental approaches. Um, And so I'm just going to jump into it and introduce our guest today. Uh, We are joined by Dr. Hillel Adesnik. He is Associate Professor of Neurobiology at University of California, Berkeley. He's in the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology and a member of the Helen Wills Neuroscience Institute. Um, And he has a uh, longstanding background studying cortical circuit function. He did his uh, bachelor's degree at Columbia University and his PhD at UCSF. And then he was a Helen Hay Whitney uh, postdoctoral fellow in the lab of Massimo Scanziani at UCSD where he studied a lot of circuit computations and visual cortex among other things. And that is work that he continues to this day using a wide variety of techniques and tools um, that his own lab is responsible for developing. And so we're gonna get into a lot of the details of his work, Um, but uh, Dr. Adesnik, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me, Joe and Jeremy. Really pleasure to be here.
0: well, it's great to have you, and I thought one thing we could sort of do to sort of juxtapose your research with some of the other stuff we've talked on the show about is, uh, you know, one thing we've talked a lot about uh, is connectomics, which is this approach in neuroscience today using modern, say, EM techniques, electron microscopy techniques, to reconstruct the fine, detailed wiring diagrams of the brain. Um what you do is is quite different from connectomics, but it is very important in your work to understand how different cells are connected to each other and the sort of logic of different cell types. So, what what is it about your approach to neuroscience that um, is sort of complementary or different from, say, a connectomics approach?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So comparing it, I guess, to the electron microscopy connectomics you're talking about, I would say the stuff we're doing is functional connectomics in the sense that we actually are interested in how all the different cell types in the cortex connect to each other, because that's going to give us deep insight into the mechanisms of neural computation. Um, While there's an incredible value to EM connectomics, so you get this full detailed architecture of every cell connecting to other cells. Um, which you can only get anatomically with that kind of resolution at the nanometer scale. What you obviously don't get or what you miss with that approach is you don't get things like the dynamics of synapses. You don't even really get the strength of individual synaptic connections because just looking at a synapse doesn't give you maybe not even a very good clear picture of how strong that synapse is. You just know there are synapses. Maybe you can count them between different cells, but they can widely vary depending on, for instance, the number of neurotransmitter receptors on the postsynaptic membrane, which actually is typically not observable in EM. So our interest, if we're trying to build up model that explains computational properties of the cortex, you of course need to know who connects to whom, which EM is great for, but you also need an additional level of detail about the strength of those connections and the dynamics of those connections. And of course, ideally this plasticity, the long and short-term plasticity of those connections. So I would say what we're trying to do is to complement those approaches which of course are, are super important for neuroscience and to ultimately give a, uh, an accurate model of the brain you have to combine the literal architecture at the nanometer scale with functional architecture understanding how two neurons connect with a, a, ch- a dynamic synaptic strength
1: so what kind uh, when you talk about like functional these functional connections what kind of things are you looking for um to assess the, the functional connection between cells
2: Right. So I'd say that uh, the approaches people have taken for functional connectivity and connectomics uh, in the past decades, going back, you know, actually a few decades, is you can record two cells at a time and activate one with an electrode and record the response with the electrode. That gives you possibly the most direct measure of synaptic strength. Of course, that's, that, that's not at the omics level because that's done in just a few cells at a time at best. You know, the most heroic would do 12 cells. So the approach that we take in my lab and, and certainly other groups are taking as well and have taken is using light to stimulate the neurons using optogenetics rather than uh, using electric because light you can simply structure and move around a piece of brain tissue without perturbing it and so we use in our case two photon excitation of neurons that are expressed in this artificial protein the microbial opsin, we stimulate one neuron at a time or so, while either recording the postsynaptic cell's synaptic response with an electrode. So you have high throughput on the presynaptic side and low throughput on the postsynaptic side, but at least you get the the direct physiological measurements of of both connectivity and synaptic strength and short-term dynamics and, and plasticity if you probe that. Uh, but you're only getting all-to-one connectivity. If you want all-to-all, uh, there's a couple ways you might imagine doing that. One way we're trying to do that is with imaging of the postsynaptic side. So imaging with calcium, so imaging synaptic calcium transients. And there's pros and cons to each of these. Um, that'll give you direct uh, somewhat functional measurements, perhaps correlated with synaptic strength. And you know the dream would be a, a, an all-optical approach where you might have very high-resolution voltage measurements using imaging. If you had that, then essentially you wouldn't need electrodes anymore. And if you really had the, the kind of resolution, that single-cell pre- and postsynaptic or single-cell presynaptic and spine-level, you know, synapse-level postsynaptic, then in theory, you could map the full functional connectome in a, in a piece of tissue. And then the most exciting thing I would say would take that data and then correlate that with EM reconstruction of the same tissue. That, of course, would be kind of a heroic experiment, but I think that's something that's maybe not too far in the future. So
0: one thing that that comes uh, across very clearly in your work is... Um... You know, is is this idea of cell type specificity and the functional importance of different types of neurons in cortical circuits? So, your lab works in visual cortex and uh, barrel cortex and in mice, um, and you know, using these approaches, you've been able to show that under different experimental contexts, using different sets of stimuli, these different classes of neurons give rise to different properties in excited neurons. I don't think that we've really talked a lot about the specific role of different types of interneurons in shaping the response properties of pyramidal cells. So could you give us a little bit of a a primer on how these circuits are organized and and what some of these different cell types are doing?
2: Sure, sure. So in the neosensory neocortex that we study, the basic principles are that you have, you know, about 80% glutamatergic excitatory 20% GABAergic and that's pretty much true in mice and proportions are not that different even in humans uh, among those 20% of uh, GABAergic cells they actually are fairly heterogeneous. Uh, I mean, I should say extremely heterogeneous to the point where first we break them down into a few other subtypes. And so why are we doing this? Why do we care about these different subtypes? Well, one is the connectivity between different cells is wildly different. There's a lot of connectivity rules where some cells only talk, some cell types only talk to other cell types. And if you think about this matrix of connections between cell types that are defined, I would say genetically and morphologically, uh, which of course determines key, key properties, it's the connectivity matrix between that determines perhaps the most important properties of how the circuit operates. Now, presumably during evolution, you had this diversification of cell types because different computations could be best performed by subgroups or subnetworks of cells. Rather than having the same cell perform many different functions, you could clearly elaborate the types of computations you could perform by having multiple uh, sub-networks that themselves would be recruited at different time points, say different sensory stimuli, different behavioral contexts, and so building on a lot of work of a lot of labs over the last 20 years, I would say, we've come to realization that both different types of brain states, motivational states, behavioral states, but also very different sensory states, different types of stimuli, uh, low light levels, high light levels, strong stimuli, weak stimuli, these all can act like driving different subnetworks that are processed in distinct ways. And I think the ultimate reason in is that the neocortex one of the major goals in neocortex is to flexibly process information so that, you know, depending on the task the animal's trying to perform or depending on whether they're trying to escape a predator or, or identify prey or so forth, they can use subnetworks that can appropriately process the information, let's say, you know, pseudo-optimally. And for that, the, the solution the cortex has found, one of the key solutions is to have different subnetworks of cell types that connect in different ways so as to optimally process this information. And so in the visual cortex, for example, in mice, you have three principal of gabergic cell types. So, let me, actually, let me say that. Four gabergic cell types. One is just not as well studied, but the one I'll, we can talk about in, uh, are the – should I get into the actual cell types? Okay. That'd be
0: great, sure. actually, yeah.
2: Okay. So the the dominant cell type that was by far and is still by far my most studied cell type in the cortex for some technical reasons, as they're easy to identify electrically, are the fast-spiking basket cells. So these are gabergic cells that are best known to synapse on the cell body, of excitatory cells and by having their strong GABAergic synapses so close to the axon hillock they can essentially act like a powerful stabilization force or even a veto on spiking and they've been well known for decades to enforce feed-forward inhibition enforce spike timing fidelity on their postsynaptic targets stabilize the network you eliminate this cell type you have basically you have epileptic seizures in the brain. And it's not impossible to think, it's probably likely that alterations in these, in that particular cell type does lead to human epilepsy, though I'm not sure how well that's understood. Um, But we think broadly about the balance between excitation and inhibition, it's this particular cell type that maybe composes half of all interneurons, that is principally responsible for a lot of that balance. Although I will say, and we'll get to this maybe in a bit later, that itself is fractioned into subcell types. But I'm going to talk about the four principal ones. So there's the fast-spiking basket cell that we'll probably, people know best. The second best known, I would say is that is a neuropeptide positive one called the somatostatin expressing interneuron that also heterogeneous, but the best known class of those cells has been identified by a neuroanatomist named Martinati. So they're called Martinati cells. And the reason they're really fascinating is because unlike they have a number of differences that are that are quite striking unlike the basket cell which synapse in the soma they synapse on the dendrites and very often on the very distal dendrites of pyramidal cells which is a whole nother interesting story we can talk about um, the other key features that make them unique is unlike the fat the fast spike and basket cells that have this incredibly precise timing of spikes and really fire just one to two milliseconds after the excitatory cells they fire at a much delayed sort of t- temporally delayed for some simple biophysical reasons. And so they kind of mediate this, there's this temporal evolution of which interneurons are actually driving an inhibition, both in space and time. And then the third class is also fascinating because it's another neuropeptide uh, expressing neuron called the vasoactive intestinal peptide neuron, just the marker that we know it by. Um, that its most interesting and defining feature is that its primary targets are not excitatory cells, they're inhibitory cells. So that's really interesting because they essentially, therefore, disinhibit the network rather than inhibit the network. So the activation of these cells or the suppression of these cells has a sort of double negative effect on pyramidal cells. So they end to boost activity of pyramidal cell network because they primarily target, in this case, actually somatostatin cells. Very briefly, the fourth class is an interesting class of cell called NDNF or another type of uh, marker. They tend to only really be present in the very, very topmost layer of the cortex. So actually, they're very easy to record from and image from. And it's not exactly clear what they're doing. There's just some recent very nice work on them. But they might be involved in volume transmission rather than point-to-point transmission of GABA um, and also generally regulating excitability of the network. So I would say those are the four major classes, and if you delve deeply into the more recent work from Allen Institute and some other groups, you can then take those four classes and fractionate each of them into between maybe another three to 10 subclasses based on a set of genes that they each express. So again, wow. then it becomes a bit of a philosophical problem. What's the different, what's actually a cell type, which is actually a totally unresolved question in biology writ large, not just in neuroscience. So what makes two different cells? From our perspective, one simple answer to that is if they're functionally different, they encode different things, they connect to different cells. Even if, um, if they have the same genetics or different genetics, the most important criteria of a neuron, in my opinion, is gonna be what they do in the circuit, which is mostly dependent gonna be on their connectivity and what sets up the connectivity. But what's true, we know about these other cell types I've been describing, the three major classes, uh, plus the the fourth one, is that they definitely have very unique connectivity profiles. And that's a detail I won't belabor right now, but they're extremely different. And so the activity of these cells, um, both their inputs and their outputs, determines that they encode different properties of stimuli and they're going to impart different computational abilities to the circuit. So you're
1: talking about bridging connectivity to function, and uh, the function that you're you're interested in, or at least that you you discussed with us, uh, is this idea about uh, perception of of the stimuli, and and in in particular in the context of uh, visual stimuli. So, how would you describe the difference between uh, vision and perception?
2: Okay. Yes. Yeah. So stepping, I guess, out a moment. Um, uh, not to the level of cell types, this level of what does it mean to see versus to perceive or know that you see. And uh, I think the words vision and perception are used colloquially by different groups differently. Um, And I don't think there's actually a formal definition. So I'll give you my own definition that we use operationally in the lab. So, um, you know, we can say that even the most rudimentary organisms that have photosensitivity and can act on that photosensitivity may have some level of vision. Right? It could be single pixel detectors. But if they photo attacks, they have like some level of vision. Uh, in a mammal, let's say that what vision is is the representation of, of photons, in this case usually on the retina, that then can be used to uh, execute a specific behavior. And vision, therefore, is really processing you know, light information and using that to drive some motor action, ultimately. Let's call it that operationally. Although, of course, the motor action isn't necessary, right? We all know that we can see without doing anything. But when we're talking about animal research or what an animal is doing, the only way we know an animal has sensed something is they then, of course, have a behavior. Uh, like in an operant training task or in a natural behavior. Um, perception of course is, is a term often used in a number of contexts. Some people use it colloquially very similar to sensation or vision or if, if sensation generally includes vision, that's just the sort of the computational processing of light data uh, where i would say my opinion uh, if we can differentiate these terms is perception is one step higher than simply receiving that information and evoking behavior it's a process where the animal or of course people become aware of their own percepts that they're aware that they're seeing something that they're processing that information in a sort of semi let's call it a conscious way and they can act on it using conscious systems and that's not to say that any you know mice and other even lower species may have the same level of perception or some aspects of perception that even humans do. It's hard to test that, of course. What we test in the lab is that they have some behavior. So it's hard to discriminate, let's say, empirically between vision and perception on mice and most species. And I'd say it really hasn't been done because how do you even address the question, can the mouse, is a mouse aware of its own visual pers- visual sensations so does it have visual perception in a human this is easy you simply ask a person did they see something and one thing you can do in humans is you can ask you can for instance you can play you can provide them with some light stimulus and change the intensity of the stimulus and at some point under some photonic threshold or density of light they'll say i didn't see it even though there was some light so that's you know you are clearly aware of that light stimulus or in a slightly more sophisticated way, if you look at humans who have trauma or stroke to part of the visual cortex, their primary visual cortex, you can put a stimulus in the part of visual space that is rep- is represented by where they have damage, and they will not report seeing anything, which effectively is they're blind. Now, that's the same as if you if you lose your vision in your retina, okay, you're blind, but in this case, their retinas are typically functioning totally fine, and it's something, it's they've lost piece of their visual cortex, and they say, I don't i don't see anything. So perception for humans is the ability to verbally report that you actually experience the percept and what i'd like to say is that if we can do that in other species and there's been certainly attempts to do that in in monkeys actually i'd say successful attempts to show that macaque monkeys do have this experience themselves that it's more than just sensory motor like Process the vision and respond to it, motor is that there's a level, certainly, I would say, in, in monkeys that um, they experience that percept. And so, one of the questions we're interested in is what other species can we find that mice, uh, for instance, experience their percepts? And so, they really have their sensations, so they have perception. And who knows how far it goes down the chain of evolution.
0: So, so, so to tie this
1: back to uh, cell types some of the cell types you brought up were these VIP interneurons and these somatostatin interneurons and your your lab has sort of tied them to, would it be fair to say that uh, sort of a, a functional role of those in vision?
2: So, yeah, I would say that in humans and probably in any species that has perception, the neurons that are involved in, in vision per se that involve in computational processing of visual information should also therefore be involved in perception. But I think there's an interesting distinction from the literature of uh, human patients. A, there's an operational distinction between vision and perception. And the best example of that, and I'll talk about that and explain how it relates to cell types is a phenomenon in humans called blindsight um, in which humans, again, uh, they have a destruction, a part of the visual cortex. So they don't report seeing Visual stimuli that you present to them. So if the clinician says, you know, how many fingers am I holding up, in a part of their visual field where that cortex area has been destroyed, they say, I, I don't see any fingers. But the interesting or fascinating finding is that if the clinician forces them to guess how many fingers are holding up, they can do very well. They can guess the number correctly. But you ask them, well, why did you guess three or five? They'll say, I, I don't know. I had a feeling, but I, I don't see anything. So. The fascinating, and this is called blindsight. It's the ability to process visual information, even get it out to your motor system, in this case, verbal response, uh, without actually sort of having the conscious experience of seeing the fingers. So that tells us, this, this phenomenon of blindsight tells us there's a dissociation between the sensory motor aspects of visual information. And that's what I'll call vision versus the really perceptual or conscious perceptual aspects that... It clearly requires visual cortex, but it's the same neurons, right, in visual cortex that are both processing information, for instance, to recognize objects, to identify, ultimately identify faces. And at the same time, there's something that happens. Maybe that information splits, right? There's the part of the brain that processes what is in the picture, you know, infratemporal cortex. And there's presumably another area that we haven't identified. I don't think anyone has identified. I mean, you can hypothesize it's frontal, that is responsible for the experience of that percept or being aware of that percept. Oh, it may be highly distributed. Um, what we do know is that they those are both of those processes, vision and perception, require a visual cortex. And so the cell types that we're talking about are involved to a scent in both. Now, maybe your question might be about trying to anticipate it, is well, maybe some cell types are more involved in one than the other. And that is a question we are trying to empirically address. The challenge, of course, is cell type manipulations, by and large, are only possible in certain species like mice. Not so easy to do it in humans, of course, Uh, I'd say ethically impossible. And even in monkeys, although there's a lot of advances in that, um, so I think it would be great to do that in monkeys, but there's just so many incredible technical challenges. So if we can ask this question in rodents, like if rodents do have conscious experience of their percepts, then we can get at that question. And I'd say that is exactly one of the things that we're trying to do. We're trying to ablate different cell types, just literally destroy them, which you can do genetically and ask this question, can the mice still see, as in be aware of their vision?
0: So, so this raises a whole bunch of questions. Um, so, you know, first of all, I, I, have, I have another question about cell types and sort of, you know, tying some of the, the functional properties of, of cell types to say perception or the role of visual cortical circuits and behavior. And then I have another question about, I guess, behavior more in general, but I'll ask the first one. So, you know, you gave you gave a couple really um, good examples of of how a VIP cell is wired up and how a somatostatin cell could be wired up. for instance, you mentioned just a recap. A VIP cell you know is um, you know might have really strong, uh, projections to other inhibitory cells. So when those cells are active, the inhibition shuts down and you get this sort of disinhibitory effect. And then another example you gave was the somatostatin cell, where rather than targeting, say, the cell body and being the sort of clamp on pyramidal cell activity, it might target uh, distal dendrites, which might be a, a site where different sources of inputs to the cell might be integrated, for instance. So are there examples of how perturbing these different types of cell types show us some you know, different, diff- different functional significance of them in specific types of perception or perception of specific types of sensory features? <laughs>
2: So yes, yeah, so to respond, I would say, okay, so um, in mice, where these experiments would have been done, one could manipulate these different inhibitory cell types and ask how that affects the animal's ability in a sensory motor task to process visual information, to distinguish that from the moment from perception. So for instance, how they differentially impact sensation, They, I think they probably also impact perception, but I'll keep that separate based on the definitions I gave. So definitely, sure. um, there's been a number of groups that have activated these different cell types, suppress these different cell types um, in different types of behavioral tasks. Uh, One interesting and very simple result, which was kind of elegant is that if you simply turn up the activity of VIP cells, you you drive them hard with optogenetics. uh, You can have a mouse that's been trained to detect visual stimuli. And when you don't present any visual stimuli, if you activate those VIP cells, the mouse will act like there's a visual stimulus. Now, it's not like the Alice probably doesn't experience a specific visual stimulus. We don't know, but what's going on, at least the mechanistic level, we do know is that you drive those cells firing rates of the excitatory cells go up. And typically in those, uh, if the activity of your excitatory cells increases, you interpret that as something's going on, probably the contrast of the scene or the luminance maybe is increasing. It's equivalent to what's called in humans, a phosphine, where the traditional experiment is you micro stimulate and, in in the human brain or transcranial magnetic stimulation in the human, and people will experience spots of light. And so the fascinating thing about VIP cells, because they drive this inhibition, even though they're GABAergic, they can drive presumably phosphines. In other words, they can presumably drive a visual sensation, perhaps a visual percept, simply by disinhibiting the network. What that looks like to the animal, of course, we have no idea. We have a hypothesis in our lab that they're critical for illusory percepts that you would see like kinesia triangles. we're testing that. Um, But if you then perturb other cell types like the somatostatin cell, you can have just changes in the ability of the animal to discriminate different features, the the size or shape of the object. Um, And so, In other words, these cells are probably involved, I mean, broadly speaking, since they're three superclasses, they're involved in many computations. And in some cases, adding activity to some might improve visual discrimination, other degrade it. Um, At the lowest level, I think the best understood is simply visual detection again, in which if you, for instance, um, add activity to the somatostatin cell or the parvalbumin cell, you reduce the detectability of stimuli. Again, that's also very simple. If you're thinking about detection of adding or taking away spikes, you activate certain interneurons that reduces excitatory activity. The animal becomes less sensitive, particularly to these low contrast, difficult to perceive stimuli whereas activation of the VIP disinhibitory cell has the opposite effect. So when it comes to like simple detection, maybe the simplest possible computation, which was there a stimulus or wasn't there, although this is widely used even in human psychophysics, clearly the interneurons are playing their expected role. When it comes to shape discrimination or ultimately things, more interesting things like object identification or or face discrimination, it would be really fascinating to know how these different cell types are contributing, uh, as far as I know, mice don't discriminate faces, but they do discriminate fairly high order visual features. Uh, the number of groups that have shown that, um, clearly they have, they don't have high resolution vision, but they still have the ability to differentiate and to identify objects with vision. Uh, but I'm not so certain about the results using these perturbations in the cell types, but I would strong hypothesis. You would get definitely get different effects.
0: That's, I mean, that's really cool. But, uh, you know, one thing that Seems really intrinsically important to all of this is, and this is sort of my second question is, is the importance of behavior in all of this? Like, you can't really ask any questions about, uh, you know, the the experience of vision in a mouse without like having really well designed behavioral experiments. It sounds like so. Um, you know as you're you know sort of dealing with questions about perception what are some of the situations that mice are in in the lab that you know allows you to to get at questions of about perception what what are and also what are some of the manipulations you can do where you can see that yes clearly something has changed in how the a, the animal is is perceiving a stimulus or um yeah
2: right I mean, the classic way, and and, uh, what a lot of my lab and many labs do, as it's been done in humans, is you you parameterize some stimulus, like a visual stimulus, and that parameterization can be in intensity, so contrast size, frequency of motion, or direction of motion, and then you train an animal or you ask a person how detectable it was or what was the feature of that stimulus, like what orientation was. And so in our lab, I guess the simplest behavior that many other groups and we use is we train an animal to detect gradings of different contrasts. And what you get, like in humans, is you get a very simple monotonic function where the stronger the contrast, the more detectable it is. That's also true of size. The larger the size, the more detectable. It depends on spatial frequency. That is the grading the frequency of these visual stimuli, spatial frequency. And so these tests are very simple. You can clearly, obviously in humans, they're easy to test. And in mice, they're actually very easy to test us in a sort of like operant conditioning paradigm. And they're very... Um, They're quantitatively useful because you get this very nice function called the psychometric function, and you can see very subtle changes in that function imply changes in sensation. And I'll use the word sensation here because I think perception requires a slightly different task, which we can follow up on. But in in this task, which is most widely used in all types of neurosciences, you have some psychometric function that relates the probability of the animal either responding or responding correctly in a certain task. And... Typically, if you do a neural perturbation that impacts the circuit and impacts the computation, you can see some change in that, you know, let's call it let's an S-shape, S-shaped sigmoidal function. You can see a shift leftward on the axis or rightward implying a different sensitivity to that feature, like the intensity or so forth. You can see a change in the maximum value indicating the the strength of that response in the brain. Um, and so it gives you a very quantitative way of accessing the per, let's say the, sen- the, sen- the sensory abilities of the animal or as some people call them the perceptual abilities, which I think is, is again, probably true as long as we know the animals actually perceiving them which requires a separate set of experiments where the animal can actually have, can tell you not did I see seven, uh, whether I respond or not, but actually can tell us with a positive action that I didn't see something. And if they can discriminate, like you ask a person you know, what, how many um, fingers am I holding up? And they say two. That means, of course, they imply that they saw something or they would say, well, why are you, I don't understand, you're not, why are you asking me that question? So what we're trying to do in the lab is to always allow the animal to give us an opt-out to say, well, I don't know if the grading was moving left or the right. There was no grading. And that's, it's really as simple as adding a third option to the task. You know, for instance, if the animal, let's, Put it simply from a moment has two levers, A and B. Like for instance, this uh, grading, this visual grading was moving to the left and moving to the right. They indicate that with two levers. And that's a very common you know, version of the task for monkeys or humans or mice. The third option is pull a different lever if there was no grading. And that's very important. It's important to see if the mouse can make a positive action to say it didn't experience something. Because then by inference, it is normally having an experience of the percept. And we can get more into that, but that's ultimately, I think, a key point in a lot of tasks is to always have an opt-out so you can more relate it to a human's experience.
1: So for our, our listeners who haven't, uh, done much behavior work. How how difficult is it to actually train the mice to to do these tasks? I mean, as you as you're trying to distinguish between uh, sensation and perception, uh, inevitably it seems like the task uh, the complexity of the task kind of goes up. So, are you sort of fighting a losing battle there, or are, are these things that that you are, are pretty straightforward to train an animal to do?
2: Yeah, I think what we're finding a lot of people who have done a lot more behavioral training than I have is it's not a very intuitive relationship between what we perceive as a difficulty of the task and how the mouse does. And the mouse's goal, the way this is done is, you know, the mouse is motivated for some reward. They really want that reward. And so they're going to figure out whatever solution they can to get that reward. And, and if you haven't really carefully designed your behavior, they're going to solve it and trick you. And this is what monkeys do, of course, too. Uh, even humans will find solutions. And so um, to answer your question, uh, it turns out that these, some of these tasks, like uh, you know, adding this third opt-out is not a hard thing to do, provided the rest of the task is designed simply. The way we happen to do it, oh I'm not even sure it's necessary, is we put mouse in virtual reality uh, on a floating ball, which is pretty standard now in neuroscience. And the advantage of putting them in virtual reality so that their sort of head stays in the same place is they can indicate a response simply by running in a certain direction. You know, if a stimulus is on the left, runs to the left. If a stimulus is on the right, runs to the right. If there's no stimulus, runs straight. And of course that gives us a, a, a many options for the animal to respond. And it's somewhat, it seems somewhat natural for them. So it doesn't necessarily have to do with the cognitive difficulty of the task. It often has to do with just, you know, how comfortable the animal is on the microscope. So, um, I think there's just some empirical questions. It's very hard to know how hard a task is because there's so many sort of hidden variables, but any, to give you a concrete answer, most of these tasks in, you know, an average mouse only takes a few weeks to train. Um, and so again, the time to training is it's not easy to infer from that. How hard a task is even the monkey, which is clearly a lot more, let's call it intelligent. If you will, it takes a time to train them simply because they need to agree to be trained. Just like they need to agree to be trained. And so some mice might take very long, not because they're not smart, simply because they're almost too smart. Like, you know, think about children in school. They may not learn the information, not because they're not bright, because they just don't want to be learning the information. So it's hard to answer that question, how hard a task is. Maybe you can parameterize some aspect of the task, but the tasks I'm describing only take about two to three weeks um, to get to a pretty good degree of proficiency.
0: So sort of tying all of this together, I mean, what you've described sort of it explains a little bit about how we can understand visual cortical circuits, um, from a, b- both in terms of their anatomical properties, the projections to each other, the functional properties of the, what those connections mean for detecting visual stimuli, you know, designing behavioral experiments. If you do it right, you can sort of understand one is the animal experiencing something and two, what is the animal experiencing? So it gets you from, you know, this aspect of uh, beyond a little bit of, you know, just the sensory side of things to the experience, the perceptual experience of the animal. But, you know, one thing, i want to go back to something you said at the very beginning, which is like, ultimately you could sort of do all of this without electrodes. Like you have the ability to read calcium signals you, or, or even potentially voltage signals using um, fluorescent indicators. You have the ability to target individual cells using um, very, very, You know, finely tuned options. So, you know, getting into the realm of sort of science fiction a little bit. What are the types of experiences that you could bestow an animal without it actually having that? We talked about sort of like perception in the context of vision, but can you have perception without vision to some extent? Can you inject certain types of experiences into into the cortex just by knowing the right patterns of activity? I mean. You know, I think of sort of like the matrix, like, you know, somebody can be in a tube and they can have all these experiences in the tube okay. um, without actually having it.
2: Okay, so I guess there's two answers to that. So first, if you mean, can you generate an experience without generating the actual representation of that image in the primary visual cortex, right? The first cortical stage. So can you go to higher cortical areas or very deep cortical areas to generate full, rich experiences? So in the matrix, of course, science fiction, like what are they actually doing? Where are they injecting the activity in the brain? So... It looked like it was in the brainstem, if I remember. It looked like it was in the brainstem. Maybe it was just a convenient place to, to put whatever device that was. But... Um, I, that's a fascinating question. I mean, the way I've been thinking about originally is simply to treat the primary visual cortex as this very sophisticated processor of visual input from the retina. And so if we wanted a prosthesis, a device that could write in images. So if you had a person who had lost their eyes or lost their vision from their retina, you could replace all the information coming down the optic track to the cortex by this, uh, optogenetic simulation device over the visual cortex and you would try to recreate the exact patterns of activity that should normally be there given the information from let's say a nice high resolution camera so you would have a camera that would be on you know google glass or whatever I guess no one uses that. But the idea is they might have glasses with a camera, and that information, the camera would supplant the retina, but you'd have to already know the transformation from uh, you know, a camera's output that would be different from a, a, the retina's output, but you know it needs to be in the cortex given the image. So you have a model that says given a certain image on the sensor of the camera, what should I inject in the cortex, and you do that, and that basically acts like the retina. Because the cortex is, is, you're directly playing in the cortex. And I think there, of course, you, I would have hypothesized that a human would have rich visual experience. I don't know if that's more similar or not to what's going on theoretically in like the matrix, where maybe you can go deeper somewhere in the brain where the representation of our experience is not so literal in the sense like, Even though information is abstracted in the visual cortex, we have a map of the visual world, a very clear, simple retinotopic map, where different points in the tissue of the cortex represent different points in space. In higher cortical areas, such one-to-one mapping isn't so clear. I mean, there might be cognitive mapping, of course. So there might be a way to go into frontal areas, look at the representation in frontal areas of our, say, multisensory experience, which is also probably combined with our emotional state, our motivational state, um, you know, at least... That might also be occurring in primary but let's say that you go up there and maybe you can write in those patterns and even without any sort of true representation of the visual data in sort of a sort of a two or three d matrix you end up with the same experience i don't haven't really deeply considered that notion what well, we've thought more easily if you want to hijack the the brain is you go into the primary sensor areas which is only three synapses let's say or two synapses away from the first spiking neuron in the entire visual system so to the question of where you would actually want to generate artificial perceptions we're starting in the primary sensory area because i think the representation is a little more intuitive to us it's a bit better understood but i think maybe an answer to your question empirically we would go through different areas and repeat the same process and the process to be clear is you first measure activity in a normal functioning brain in response to say different visual stimuli or sensory stimuli you measure that you build up a model or sort of a set of responses to different stimuli and then the system that we or others have developed is you can take those patterns and put them those exact same patterns and back in without anything actually in the world like you could put an animal or a person in a dark sensory deprivation chamber and if you were to put in this information they would experience it and then you could do that exact same process not just in the primary visual cortex secondary visual cortex infratemporal cortex or frontal cortex and so forth and be curious to see if you could do this in a human so you can get an answer more verbally what they experience how that would happen of course what people have done is they've done Uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation or electrical stimulation in different parts of the brain as many are people probably familiar with uh, classic experiments done during neurosurgery from penfield you know decades ago is that you stimulate small amounts of current in many different parts of the brain you get very rich sensory percepts Um, you stimulate in the primary visual cortex and the percepts are a little more basic Uh, they're like spots of light maybe have some fuzzy aspects to them and the deeper you go you can get more and more rich percepts so Maybe if, if we can use that little bit of information, it might be more straightforward to generate rich multisensory percepts artificially by going deeper or higher into the cortical uh, circuit or hi- cortical hierarchy.
1: So, so how, uh, I mean, this is something your lab is actively working on. How far away are we from actually realizing some of these these ideas about reading uh, or writing in uh, sensory Sensations into the brain, and uh, what are the things that are, what are the problems that remain to be solved to to actually uh, get to the, this idea of, uh, I, I guess, a brain machine interface that is actively re- replacing uh, sensory sensation. The the crux of the, the question is where are we at yeah. in terms of of that? Um, I guess in in the context of vision, and what are the what are the sort of limitations of the current technology. That would need to be solved to get us to the point where where that's sort of adoptable.
2: I see. So, let's say I'll be specific in respect to, let's say, a cortical prosthesis, uh, which is definitely, I mean, there are already cortical prostheses with electrodes. Um, you know, 100 <laughs> arrays, uh, arrays of 100 electrodes. And I think what we're talking about here is these optical prostheses, or we can just call it that for the moment. Of course, the, the major difference in electrical and optical prostheses relates to cell types. Uh, at least in one way, is you can target the stimulation to cell types with photons that you can't so easily do with electrodes. Um, the other thing is that the goal of the, the sort of the system that we design and other labs are, are also designing called holographic system is that we can replay very precise three-dimensional patterns of activity which you can't with electrodes. And so the idea is that the cortical corticorosis we'd like to develop and where we are is that right now we can actually go into the brain of a mouse. And I think like it's only ethically why we can't do this in higher species for the moment, because the tools would be the same. Is that in a mouse, we can recreate spatial temporal dynamics that do approximate what real neurons are doing, the major limitation is the scale. That is how many neurons you can do this. So given even a very simple flash of light will activate thousands, if not millions of neurons in the brain, even of a mouse. Uh, most of that activity is not really necessary for the sensation of the percept, but it's there. So maybe it's modulating it. What we're trying to do in our lab and other groups have already done to a certain extent is you train an animal on a task, a visual test, for instance, discriminating the orientation of a grading or just detecting the grading itself. And then you ask what is necessary, or let me put it different, what types of activity are sufficient to fool the animal into experiencing the percept that they are actually normally trained to respond to. So they're normally trained to respond to a grading on a screen. Uh, if you don't put anything on the screen, but you artificially stimulate the cortex, what does it take to fool the animal? This was done years ago with electrical stim, and then it was done with sort of more conventional optogenetic stimulation with just like an led where you're just going to activate a bunch of neurons and one could use those tools which are relatively crude to simply say like how many neurons need to fire um how many action potentials do you need is there other features and then when you have this high resolution sort of control over space and time you could begin to ask which cells are needed is it something about those cells so for instance in two studies that came out recently a key property of the cells was one in one case they had to actually respond in a similar way to the stimulus. So if the stimulus was a vertical grading on the screen, you had to activate neurons that would normally respond to the vertical grading. Or they had to be neurons uh, which were highly interconnected with other neurons, maybe hub-like neurons. And activating those cells did two things. At the most important level, it drove the behavior, okay? There's some interesting... Caveats to some of these experiments, which we we'll do need to get into, but uh, they could, in fact, by activating very small numbers of neurons, 2, 6, 20, you could make the animal, fool the animal into thinking there was either a stimulus when there wasn't or a stronger stimulus when it was, in fact, a lot weaker. And so using this technology, we could begin to really define what are the features of the neural activity patterns that causally drive perception like not just how many neurons not just which neurons but how many action potentials different neurons does it matter which cells fire how much they fire the synchronization of their activity what are the features of the neural code the syntax if you will that is most meaningful when it comes to generating a sensation or if you will a percept so i would say that now the answer is how close are we so in mice you can do this in the sense that you can fool a mouse in a very constrained you know laboratory controlled task you can make them sort of, your inference can be they believe they experienced something. Although one could also say that what you're triggering is the motor behavior. How do you know they actually experienced the percept? And that might be the most squirrely question. And yet, given your questions that you're asking, that is the most important question because we're not asking what it takes to drive the animal to pull the lever. What we're asking is, what does it take to make the animal actually experience the percept? Because if you're going to define, or sorry, if you're going to develop a cortical prosthesis for a human, it's not enough to make you know, to drive a pattern in the visual cortex that makes the person think, oh, I'd like a cookie. No, you need to drive the rich visual perception. You know, if they're watching a, a movie, you wanna put that movie into their brain. And so that's a tougher, a much tougher question to actually know what the mouse is experiencing. We talked a little about this before, but the really even tougher question, it's not that so, we can ask in a mouse, did they see something or not? Much more difficult question is to ask, what did they see? And you can design experiments. So what they do here is, did they see a vertical grading or horizontal grading because they're going to pull one lever for one, one level for other. That's not actually how these experiments were done, but you can imagine doing that. But even then, that's still, you can imagine there's a confound that, ooh, they just have two different behavioral programs and you're somehow triggering one motor program versus the other. What you want ideally is a verbal report of what they experienced. In absence, I think you need to design a task in a mouse where he's not, it's not a bimodal like left or right. But it could almost be a continuous distribution, and they can tell you from, you know, continuous in the sense that it can take on any value. So if you're imagining the orientation of a grading, they can tell you that it's not just either 90 or 180, but it's 0, 10, 17.5, 93. And then you can really get a much more finer representation or, let's say, understanding of what they're actually experiencing. Um, I'll mention one result before we move on that I thought was very clever. In monkeys, where they were doing, they were generating phosphine in monkeys by microstimulation, and they said, "Okay, do the monkeys experience this electrical activity in their visual cortex as bright spots or dark spots?" It's like the simplest question, but really kind of interesting. Like, what's the, it's almost the subjective aspect of that percept. Do they see it as a bright spot? So in humans, we tend to see bright spots if you stimulate, which makes somewhat intuitive sense. But you know, in reality, the visual cortex could care less if something's white or black. It's just the difference from the background. So it turns out in monkeys, the way they did this is what you do is you microstimulate, and the monkey's looking at a gray screen. And then they micro and they generate the response where the animal pulls a lever if it sees something. And then they change the screen either to black or to white. And if the, mouse, if the monkey sees the spot as white, if the screen becomes white, there'll be very low contrast and they won't perceive it as well. Vice versa, they can do it for black. And it turns out the monkeys actually... You could mask their perception of the phosphenes by making the screen darker, as if what they're really seeing is local dimming or small dark spots when you microstimulate. Why that's different from from you know Homo sapiens, we don't know. But I think that masking approach is another interesting way without forcing the animal to have a left right decision. Sort of asking or, or asking what is it what is it they perceive.
0: That's I mean it's it's fascinating that. <clears throat> We now are at a state where we're able to do these types of manipulations, where we can sort of record the activity of a neural population, and then, like as you say, uh, write in the complex spatiotemporal response of the of the whole three dimensional neural population. Um, and so we're just about out of time. I, I guess one question I have remaining is, you know, imagine somebody um, comes into Uh, to work in the Adesnik lab for the first, you know, for their first day, it sounds like a lot of the work that you're doing, there's so many different types of experiments going on from, um, you know, know, neurophysiology experiments to behavioral experiments to developing, you know, the holographic technology or, or developing the options that are required for Having the sensitivity to do this type of thing, what is the uh, what is the day in the life of of, of one of your research uh, colleagues like? I mean, how how much do you guys spend just developing the tools to make this work versus doing the you know the physiology and behavioral experiments? How do, what does that breakdown like?
2: Yeah, I would say the way it breaks down and the way uh, it's evolved a little bit naturally is that it's very team based effort. So. Some people are working on developing or engineering these microbial options, but they're talking to everyone, you know, often over Slack. Uh, one person is trying a new behavioral paradigm. Several people are learning or using the holographic technology, even if they would hardly understand the bio bioengineering of the options, and they, but everyone's sharing information. So a typical day in life really depends on what's their sort of role in the project. Um, the most common thing is because my lab is most focused on the biological aspect is most postdocs are both training animals on tasks and then manipulating different types of cells or circuits in the brain. And then there's groups of people that are working on the technology. Uh, but you know, prior pandemic, there was a lot more active or spontaneous cross-fertilization. Of course, now we have to have it a little more contrived over the internet and scheduled it. Uh, whereas, I, of course, we really enjoyed the spontaneous interactions between people and person who made the option can watch the experiment for the other person using it in the brain of a behaving animal. And it's always a lot of fun. Um, So, you know, I just realized when I started my lab that we needed a technology that could accomplish or ask the questions about sensation perception and cell types that we've been talking about. And the technology wasn't there. And somewhat surprising to me, a lot of the pieces needed to be optimized. And that's what we've been doing uh, you know, of course, many other labs have been doing this too, so we can learn from them and so forth. But it's taken quite a lot of effort of many talented people in my lab to develop in you know, all these different aspects of technology, so we can ultimately do these experiments, generate this, let's call it the cortical prosthesis, um, so we can begin really understanding the neural code of perception, and ultimately maybe, you know, as a therapeutic option for people who have lost their eyes or things like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's a really great example of how in science, you're kind of always at the state of being able to ask a new question because a new technique or technology has been developed. So it's really nice to see that encapsulated, you know, all in the work of your lab. Um, well, um, Dr. Desnick, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. This is a really uh, illuminating conversation. Um, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, that's our episode. Thank you so much to Dr. Desnick for sitting down and talking to us uh, today. Um, I, I think we covered a lot of ground there, a lot of like, you know, sort of philosophical questions about how you uh, go from studying the connective properties of circuits and the functional properties of circuits and really understanding their impact on, on behavior and uh, sensation and perception. Um, yeah. what do you think, Jeremy?
1: Yeah, I think it's a. Uh, it was kind of fascinating to hear about how some of the new technologies are are sort of pushing us beyond, um, you know, some of the other connectomic techniques that we've talked about with uh, Dr. Helmsetter and Dr. Lichtman.
0: Yeah. And I mean, we've, we've if, if people want to go back and hear a little bit more about, you know, sort of related topics, you know, we have we've talked to a bunch of vision people, uh, Natalie Rochefort, uh, Michael Stryker, Judith Hirsch. Um, so a lot of like the different types of computations that visual cortex can do, we've talked about but well, we haven't really put it all in the context of you know, really writing in specific patterns of activity to see how they augment or replace perception. I think that's, that's really incredible stuff. Um, so yeah, so tune in next time. Um, and, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you then. Take care.
2: This has been a production by the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. You can listen in on iTunes or SoundCloud. Follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at NeuroPodcast.